Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Queen Elizabeth I versus Queen Victoria. Which monarch had the biggest impact on the world? In this event, recorded in 2017, Philippa Gregory, best-selling author of the Tudor Court series of novels, joined us to make the case for Elizabeth I. And in the other corner was Daisy Goodwin, writer of the hit ITV series Victoria, arguing the case for the show's namesake. Actors Fiona Shaw and Greta Scacchi were on stage to bring the personas of these historical icons to life. And our host for the evening was historian and television presenter Dan Jones. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy the full-length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or hitting subscribe in your Apple Podcasts app. Now, let's join Dan Jones with more. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for coming here tonight to this Intelligence Squared debate, Queen Elizabeth versus Queen Victoria or as we're calling it backstage, the Great British Queen Off. Um, It's really wonderful to see so many of you here, and of course, you are very welcome. Now, tonight we're going to hear about two of the very greatest monarchs in British history, both of whom ruled for an extraordinarily long time, Elizabeth for nearly 45 years, Victoria for 63 years. They both ruled over periods of extraordinary change, renewal, and reinvention. They both gave their names to iconic eras in our national history. Eras of exploration, discovery, and scientific inquiry. We still measure our own times to some extent against the yardstick of these two great rulers' reigns. And they're still towering figures. Elizabeth and Victoria projected their personalities onto the canvas of history. So it's very hard to think of the 16th or the 19th centuries without seeing them through the eyes of those two extraordinary queens. Now, they were also, um, and I mean this as a compliment when I echo Ken Clark's now infamous phrase, bloody difficult women. I'm delighted that we have four very distinguished speakers and actors with us who are going to tell us 
in their words and the words of the queens themselves, what Elizabeth and Victoria were all about. Now, of course, this is a debate, so my job is to try and whip up as much rancor and controversy as possible. Uh, your job is to provide most of the democratic process and to vote. Now, you will have been polled as you entered the hall, and you'll have the chance to vote again at the end of the evening when you've heard the arguments and seen the performances by the actors. Now, the way you can vote is using this, not this, your voting card, which you should have been given on the way in. Now, the way that you use this card is to tear it in two, down the, bit, the perforated bit in the middle, and when a ballot, ballot box is brought around, you put either Elizabeth or Victoria into the box. Do not lose this card you will lose the franchise, effectively. Um, if you're still undecided, which I, I can't imagine you will be, but if you're still undecided at the end of, of this evening, don't tear your card in half, put the whole card into the box. Now, the advocates. Speaking tonight on Elizabeth I, we have Philippa Gregory, one of the most popular novelists writing today. She's best known for her portrayals of women in the Tudor period, and her novel, The Other Boleyn Girl, which I'm sure many of you here will have read, was made into a TV drama and a major film. Her most recent book is the number one bestseller, Three Sisters, Three Queens. And she'll be advocating for Elizabeth I. Now, advocating for Queen Victoria, we have Daisy Goodwin, screenwriter, novelist, and as you've heard, the brains behind this operation. Now, Daisy created and wrote last year's uh, ITV hit series Victoria, and she's currently working on the second season. The second season. She's also published Victoria, a novel of a young queen, and as a TV producer, she created a number of programs, including Grand Designs, which is now in its 18th year on Channel 4. Now, to illustrate their arguments, our speakers have two wonderful actors at their disposal who will be reading extracts from the Queen's writings. So please welcome... Fiona Shaw. Fiona's going to play Elizabeth I. She's a widely acclaimed actor as well as a theatre and opera director, and her roles in film have included The Black Dahlia, Mountains of the Moon, and Persuasion. In the theatre, she's perhaps best known for her powerful portrayal of Medea and Richard II. Now, playing Victoria, we have Greta Skarki. Please welcome Greta Sharkey. Greta's film credits include Heat and Dust, White Mischief, The Browning Version, Jefferson in Paris, The Player, and The Falling. She's appeared in numerous television programs, including the BBC's War and Peace last year, in which she played Countess Natalia Rostova. On the West End stage, she's appeared in The Entertainer, Deep Blue Sea, and Uncle Vanya. Please give a big hand to all four of our contributors this evening. Now, since I'm sitting here in the middle, I get to ask any questions I want. So, um, Philippa, can I ask you, when did you discover your passion for Elizabeth I? I think, like practically everybody in the world, I came across Elizabeth at school, and uh, I think I was immediately impressed by the story of this girl who comes from literally nowhere, from a, a, a 
a slur of bastardy to become Queen of England. So as a young woman, she's a great role model. Fantastic, fantastic story. Uh, Daisy, when did you discover Victoria? Well, I, Victoria was all around me growing up. You know, I cycled past her on the way to school. There were statues of this sort of scowly old lady everywhere I looked. But I, um, I fell for her when I was about 19 and I was studying history. And um, I went to the university library and I had to read Victoria's diaries. And I opened the diaries and um, I found this entry. But I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it. It's November the 1st, 1839. It was piercingly cold and I sat in my cape, which dearest Albert settled comfortably for me. He was so cold, dear angel, being in tight white cashmere pantaloons, nothing under them. <laughs> and high boots. We cantered home again. And I just read that and I, I laughed in the Cambridge University Library, which you're not meant to do. And um, after that, I thought, well, she's really a girl after my own heart. <laughs> Well, I'm very sorry I didn't wear tight white cashmere pantaloons um, <laughs> this evening, Daisy. Okay, let's get going with our first, um, our first piece of advocacy. Philippa, over to you. Please advocate for Elizabeth. I kind of want to start with arguing with the title, which is what you always do. I don't know if any of you are old enough to have been at university when you'd have a discussion and somebody sooner or later would say, define, define. And you would go, that's got me stuck. So I, I, I think we shouldn't compare successful women because I don't think we have so many that we can afford to set them up to like wrestle in jelly. <laughs> However, since that is what we are doing, we're going to do, I think, a celebration of these two great women, and it may be that at the end of it you prefer Elizabeth, so be it. <laughs> Elizabeth was an absolutely fantastic queen, and one of the reasons for this is because she was innately a great woman. She is an excellent role model for women. She was sexually active. She was shameless. She was willful. She was dominant. She was dishonest. She was pragmatic, and also, she was a great queen because she was unflinching and transparent in her despotism. She's an old-school queen. She's an old-school monarch. She's not one of these nimby-pimby, we have a lovely family, we're your friends, we'll come and open your factory sort of queen. She's a queen who gets out there and says, I am queen of England, it's going to be like this, and if you don't like it, I'm going to behead you. <laughs> and if you're going to have a monarchy, and I don't think you should have one at all, but if you're going to have a monarchy, for God's sake, have a woman who's going to do something effective and not just discuss things with people, or worse still, be devoted to her husband and family. <laughs> As an heir, she was a really terrible, treasonous heir. She was the most unreliable, rebellious, difficult woman that you would ever hate to have snapping at your heels. She was involved in two major conspiracies, causing the death of five conspirators. She undermined her sister, the absolutely miserably unhappy Mary Tudor, who I'm sure would have been not nearly so unhappy if she hadn't had Elizabeth flaunting around the court and flirting with her husband. She pretended to be Catholic, so effectively that everybody thought she was Catholic, except she kept being carried out of church with stomachache. She insisted upon wearing black and white so that she looked A, absolutely fabulous, and B, she could be pretending to be eschewing vanity. 
She always cleverly concealed all of her positions, even in the state, even when she was writing a poem scratched on the windows of Woodstock Palace while under house arrest. Even that poem can be read as a boast that she cannot be convicted or a ringing declaration of independence. Much suspected by me, nothing proved can be, quoth Elizabeth, the prisoner. Of course, this had an effect when she came to the throne. All Tudors suspected and feared their heirs, all had good reason. Only Elizabeth persecuted her heirs because she knew how treasonous and dangerous an heir can be, with the result that she refused to name her heir until the very last minute until she was dying. This is what she said when she was asked to sign a device to promise the succession to Mary, Queen of Scots. Ye think that this device of yours should make friendship between us? And I fear that rather it should produce the contrary effect. Think you that I could love my winding sheet? Princes cannot like their own children, those that should succeed unto them. How shall I, think you, like my cousin, being once declared my heir apparent, I know the inconsistency of the people of England, how they ever mislike the present government and has their eyes fixed upon the person that is next to succeed. More do adore the rising than the setting sun. I have good experience myself in my sister's time, how desirous men were that I should be in place and earnest to set me up. And if I would have consented, I know what enterprises would have been attempted to bring me to pass. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I love this. It challenges, first of all, the oppressive lie which has held women down for centuries, the powerful fiction of maternal love. Princes cannot like, she doesn't even say love, princes cannot like their own children. She doesn't fudge it by saying that they love them, but they cannot like them, or that they love them, but their behaviour is sometimes troubling. She says they can't like them. And in that, she sets all of us free. Elizabeth, as a woman, might have been expected to have maternal feelings, but bang, she's a monarch. She's a prince, as she calls it, claiming to be an honorary male. And so womanly tenderness does not apply. And if womanly tenderness does not apply to Elizabeth, it doesn't need to apply to any of us. At once, we have this get-out for women, and it's from Elizabeth I, a great role model. Not every woman loves children. This is a liberating vision. It is possible. Elizabeth tells us so. You, yourself, might not be naturally disposed to having children. Elizabeth states it simply. It's an option. Indeed. Femininity itself and all the disadvantages that come with confining yourself to a stereotype ideal of womanhood, that's optional too. According to Elizabeth, she refers to herself as a man when she wants to emphasize her authority and power. On the brink of the invasion by the Spanish Armada by 1558, she rode down to Tilbury. My loving people, I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and to die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people my honor and my blood even in the dust. I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman. But I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I, myself, will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I say this is going awfully well. (laughs) I like that bit. As a military leader, Elizabeth naturally adopted the rhetoric of a commander. But as a political leader, she was, like all Tudors, like all kings, veering constantly towards the tyrannical. There was no pretext of democracy or interest in the will of the people. Monarchs are, by their very nature, despots. 
If you want a democratic monarchy, you have to tie them up in a hundred pieces of legislation. Elizabeth believed, as perhaps some of you may now be thinking, that the will of the people is best left to the people. <laughs> Not consulted, and that the leaders had better well get on and lead. That's what Elizabeth thought, and she shows us that monarchy is tyranny. She said this to Parliament, My lords, do whatever you wish. As for me, I shall do no otherwise than pleases me. <laughs> Elizabeth was in no way a supporter of women's rights. She wasn't much of a supporter of anyone's rights but her own. But she was surrounded all her life by her inner court of ladies, and they were intimate and loving friends. I have to admit there were incidents. There was a broken finger, there were some things broken, there were some hair pullings, there were some scoldings, there was a few bannings from court. Robert Dudley's first wife was murdered at the height of Robert and Elizabeth's love affair, and his second wife was banned from court forever. Elizabeth was a terrible rival and a demanding employer, but a loyal and good friend to the women that she loved. She had been tenderly raised by Lady Bryant, and she loved her governess, Cat Ashley, till the end of her life. She even risked writing in defense of her governess when Cat was arrested, suspected of treason. She hath been with me a long time and many years, and hath taken great labor and pain in bringing me up in learning and honesty. And therefore, I ought of very duty to speak for her. For St. Gregory saith that we are more bound to them that bringeth us up well than to our parents. For our parents do that which is natural for them, that is, bringeth us into the world. But our bringers up are the cause to make us live well in it. Elizabeth was ambivalent about her sex, and that isn't surprising when you consider that she saw four stepmothers abused by her father and one of them executed. Her own mother, of course, was executed by her father, so it's not too Freudian to suggest that she associated men with power and women with dangerous vulnerability. In that, she follows contemporary thought, which called women rulers princes, to distinguish them from the usually powerless daughters or wives of kings. It happened that Elizabeth's reign coincided with some other powerful rulers, actually only three others, but that was enough for John Knox to detect a monstrous regiment. Most writers at the time struggled with the concept of someone being both a woman and a ruler. Elizabeth identified herself as different from conventional women. Though the sex to which I belong is considered weak, you will nevertheless find me a rock that bends to no wind. She gained the throne by inheritance from her father and she constantly referenced herself to his power. I may not be a lion, but I am a lion's cub and I have a lion's heart. She was not a feminist in the sense that she supported women as a whole. Like some women later come to power, she had all the contempt of the powerful for the powerless, which led her to denigrate women and to separate herself from them. I have the heart of a man, not a woman, and I am not afraid of anything. 
and though her last stepmother was a published author and scholar, and Elizabeth admired her deeply, studied with her, and was proud of her fluency in languages, she was still happy to echo the old misogynist chorus about women's learning. There is no marvel in a woman learning to speak, but there would be in teaching her to hold her tongue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as a learned queen who loved languages, she encouraged the education of young women and was part of a poetry writing, religious writing, and publishing generation of women. The Renaissance peaked in England under Elizabeth, and women artists and musicians created their works and received royal patronage. More than 100 women writers published during Elizabeth's reign, compared with a handful under her predecessors. But though she was surrounded by women poets as her ladies-in-waiting, Mary Sidney, Jane Seymour, there's no indication that she ever demonstrated anything like positive discrimination for women in the arts. For Elizabeth herself, her greatest work was always her own image. Think of the magnificent portraits filled with symbolism. Think of her revaluing the coinage and putting her image on it. Think of the magnificent court progresses when she made her courtiers bankrupt themselves to host her all around the countryside and so publicize the Elizabeth brand. She was a conscious and powerful creator of the royal image. Her greatest impact is in her creation of herself. She gives us a fantastic model of what a woman can do if no one can stop her. And making sure that no one could stop her was one of the great victories of her life. Of course she couldn't marry. Medieval and church law ruled that a woman was the servant of her husband, and Elizabeth had seen how that worked out for her sister Mary or for all her father's wives. To remain in full power on the throne, to control her own life, Elizabeth could never marry, and the many courtships were diplomatic negotiations, never a wavering of that determination. In the end, this shall be for me sufficient, that a marble stone shall declare that a queen, having reigned such a time, lived and died a virgin. But because we have been so convinced by the later so-called Victorian concept of repressed sexuality, we confuse Elizabeth's virginity with personal chastity or even with frigidity. This is not Elizabethan. Virginity was part of the brand, what people could now call outward-facing. She would declare herself married to her people, but she remained sexually promiscuous and flirtatious. Elizabeth declared herself to be a virgin publicly and repeatedly, but absolutely refused to hide her sexual activity or her passionate love affairs. Even when the affair with Robert Dudley was a public scandal, she still gave him a bedroom that connected with hers and spent days and nights in his company. She ruled her courtiers by sexual flirtation and she insisted on elaborate compliments and sexual grooming. She was hugely vain asking the Scots ambassador whether she was more beautiful than the famously lovely Mary, Queen of Scots. And when he fudged the answer by saying Mary was taller than Elizabeth, she said, then she must be too tall, because I am neither too tall nor too short. <laughs> we cannot know how deep her feelings went for the many men that she encouraged to say that they loved her. Certainly, she was passionately in love with Robert Dudley, probably with Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, and certainly with Francis Duc François, Duke of Alençon. 
She wrote this poem for him when he left in 1582, showing herself as a woman capable of both love and poetry. My care is like my shadow in the sun. Follows me flying when I pursue it, stand and lies by me, doth what I have done. His too familiar care doth make me rue it. No means I find to rid him from my breast till the end of things it be suppressed. Some gentler passions slide into my mind, for I am soft and made of melting snow. Or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me float or sink, be high or low. Let me live with some more sweet content, or die and so forget what love e'er meant. Famously tolerant on religion, when she came to the throne following her half-sister, who had persecuted people for their beliefs, Elizabeth said, I have no desire to make windows into men's souls. She was convinced she had to persecute Roman Catholics when the Pope declared against her, when she was posed with the problem of Roman Catholic heir in Mary, Queen of Scots, and the religion, the religion became associated with treason to the throne. As she said of her enemies, arrested Roman Catholics. Those who appear the most sanctified are the worst. <laughs> Elizabeth was a pragmatist on matters of religion. She didn't have her parents' interest in theology, as she said. There is only one Christ, Jesus, one faith. All else is a dispute over trifles. And in another little poem, scratched by her on the window at Woodstock, perhaps truly describes her authentic belief and her lack of interest in theological arguments. Christ was the word that spake it. He took the bread and break it. And what his words did make it, that I believe and take it. Any judgment of Elizabeth has to give her all the credit in the world for the fact that she was the most tremendous barefaced liar. She really never troubled herself with the truth and words to her were a currency. It was for her to value them and pass them off where she needed. She was terrified to order the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, for plotting against her, and she asked Mary's gaoler, Amos Paulet, if he would shorten her life. <laughs> when he refused, quite horrified, Elizabeth signed the death warrant, but after the execution said that she had not intended it to take effect. She arrested the privy councillor responsible, and she herself collapsed into grief or perhaps guilt. And she wrote this to Mary's son and cousin and her own heir. My dear brother, I would you knew, though not felt, the extreme dollar that overwhelms my mind for that miserable accident, <laughs> which far contrary to my meaning, hath befallen. I have now sent this kinsman of mine to instruct you truly of that which is too irksome for my pen to tell you. I beseech you that as God and many more know, how 
innocent I am in this case. So you will believe me that if I had bid aught, I would have bid by it. I am not so base-minded that fear of any living creature or prince should make me so afraid to do that were just or done to deny the same. I am not of so base a lineage nor carry so vile a mind. But as to disguise fits not a king, so will I never dissemble my actions, but cause them to show even as I meant them, thus assuring yourself of me that as I know this was deserved, yet if I had meant it, I would never lay it on others' shoulders, no more will I not damnify myself that thought it not. <laughs> To do it. <laughs> Convincing. Elizabeth was a great queen in that she was a great model for female behavior, sexually active, never promising obedience to a man, unafraid to show her aggression, militancy, and dominance. She loved and promoted women around her. She was a model of women's education, which did much to contribute to the golden age. She encouraged the English Renaissance and encouraged its spread to women writers. We partly see the impact of her as a cultured dominant woman in the backlash of misogyny when James took the throne. She was a great queen for England, passing laws to protect the poor, supporting the Navy, and thus expanding England overseas, if you like that sort of thing. She maintained the tyrannical power of the throne, and what else should a king do? She restored the values of the currency, maintaining peace for the kingdom while exporting piracy and slavery, if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> and people did then. And ruling for a long time to give a period of stability and certainty. To be a medieval monarch is not to be a modern monarch. It is to be a tyrant ruling by fear and favor. And she did that more successfully than many of her predecessors, and far more successfully than any of her successors. She herself said that nobody, and that would include Victoria, would be ever better than her. It is Elizabeth herself who, considering all the evident and with, with the approach to the truth and accuracy that is the hallmark of Elizabeth I, tells you today, here and now, that she is the best queen. Oh, no, there is, these are her very words. There will never queen sit in my seat with more zeal to my country, care to my subjects, and that will sooner with willingness venture her life for your good and safety than myself. For it is my desire to live nor reign no longer than my life and reign shall be for your good. And though you have had and may have many princes more mighty and wise sitting in this seat, yet you never had nor shall have any that will be more careful and loving. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full-length version right now, then head over to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.
What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.